Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with the authors of Democracies and Dictatorships in Latin America, Emergence, Survival, and Fall. The book is published this year by Cambridge University Press. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to be talking today with Scott Manwaring, who is the author of Democracies and Dictatorships in Latin America. Scott, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you, Heath? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing great. Uh, we got a rainy day in New York, but it's a, a, a real great book to read. And, and I've been excited to talk to you about the book. We've been uh, long, long awaited conversation before we get to our conversation about the book. Maybe you could introduce yourself and, and also your co-author who, who wasn't able to join us today on the on the call. Right. Well, uh, I've taught political science at Notre Dame for 32 years. And I've loved being here. I've had great colleagues and some wonderful graduate students and undergraduates. One of my best graduate students, with no, without doubt, was Anibal Perez-Lignan, my co-author. We began writing together his first year in graduate school. He's gone on to have just an excellent career at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a tenured associate up for full professor this year. So we, we had a great time working on this project together. You know, and and the result is is just so interesting. I, I have a I have a developing theory that you can judge the quality of the book by the length of the acknowledgement section of the book, <laughs> um, and you have a long one. So I wonder if you could t- tell us just a little bit more about how this book came about. Um, uh, you know, what's what's its history? Well, the ancient history of it is that. Um, uh, I was thinking, you know, this is the late night, even the mid nineties, thinking about the remarkable, unexpected democratization progress in Latin America. That is, you know, many, many scholars and policy analysts and politicians had always said, you know, democracy in Latin America goes through these cycles, um, and especially in circumstances in which uh, economic performance is really bad. Social outcomes are bad. You know, these regimes aren't going to last. Economic performance in many cases was terrible. Um, social outcomes were terrible. And yet these regimes lasted. They weren't, you know, vibrant, dynamic, extraordinary democracies in all cases, but in almost all cases, they survived. So that, that, that was in a way that framed the thinking for the book, you know, what what explains why democracies and dictatorships emerge and then survive or break down? Um, initially, the my, my initial question was focused very much on what is it about this, the third wave of democratization in Latin America that's so very different that regimes have survived despite, um, at that time, really bad economic and social performance? Um, 
but this quickly, you know, it, over time, it led to a more ambitious book to think uh, about the longer term in Latin America from really 1900 to 2010, and also to engage more deeply a panoply of theories about democratization and authoritarianism. You know, and and you seek out some pretty big explanations for regime change. This is this is um. It might not be the longest book, but it's a it's a it's a big book in terms of its ambitions, and and you take on some some pretty some well known um, theories on on similar uh, dynamics. I wonder what briefly what what some of the problems were that you saw in the existing approaches to regime change and and some of the issues that you take on in the book. Sure. Well, um, modernization theory did not seem particularly promising to explain regime change and stability in Latin America because from earlier work of ours and others, um, you know, empirically it just didn't pan out. Um, Some of the recent class theories of democratization um, were also empirically very questionable for Latin America. So if you posit that workers will work for will support democracy um, whenever it's feasible and otherwise might strive might strive for revolution. In the Latin American context, there are too many cases in which um, workers supported um, left of center populist and authoritarian regimes and actually worked against democracies. Um, the cultural theories of Ronald Englehart, all these are important, you know, very engaging theoretical approaches by excellent scholars. But in that case, you know, Englehart's work, the biggest question mark that you had to ask um, is, so, you know, in Latin America, if you ask the question of citizens, um, do you unconditionally, do you all, is democracy always the best form of government? well into the 2000s in a lot of countries with stable democracies, you know, 40 or even 50% of respondents said, no, it isn't always the best form of government. So there was a mismatch between the theoretical expectation that you would have stable democracy when citizens are are solidly supportive and the reality in Latin America, which was that you had in most countries, stable competitive regimes without such strong citizen unequivocal support for democracy. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, I think what's, so, what's really interesting about the book is you both seek out these theoretical explanations, but you also give really good explanations for, for why you're doing it. Um, and this is sort of, a, in some ways, not, not the focus of the book, but your explanations for why theory development and, is, and, and why your approach is, is grounded is, is really important. Um, you offer both a, a macro and a micro approach. I wonder what, what this perspective allows you to do in the book to take both the macro and the micro together. Right. Um, well, I mean, of course, you know, the, they are, um, the micro and the macro are integrated. And so at the macro level, we think about country outcomes and regional outcomes as the variables that we're trying to explain. Um, But at the micro level, um, we think about actors as being indispensable 
an indispensable unit of analysis. So what we mean by actors, you know, are either presidents or organized actors such as parties, social movements, armies, guerrilla groups, and so forth. Um, you know, you just can't predict macro at level outcomes based mostly or exclusively on structural variables. You have to look at actors' preferences and their actions on the ground. Um, so we really built up from actors and their preferences at a first level of analysis to country outcomes at a second, and then we connect country outcomes to regional waves at a third level. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about the data, because there's some, some pieces of it that are uh, newly collected and, and offer some uh, leverage points for you. So what are the kinds of data that you use for this? Right. Um, so, again, being from the micro level, we um, looked, we collected data for 20 Latin American countries, all 20, from 1945 or actually 44 to 2010. Um, and so we sliced each country into presidential periods. For the 20 countries, there were 290 presidential periods. And then if you think that actors make history, they do so, you know, they're not um, free will actors. They're in specific international, structural, and cultural contexts. Um, but we thought it was really important to understand the logic of each of these actors. So we had a research team identify, you know, who are the most important actors in each of these presidential periods. Um, so on typically the research team uh, following our very detailed instructions um, identified around from three to seven actors for each presidential period. So that ended up generating a total of 1,460 actors for the 290 presidential periods. So then what is the, what is the charge for each of these members of the research team? We asked them to code three variables for each actor in each presidential period. The first variable is what we call normative preferences for democracy and normative preferences for dictatorship. The idea of, of these variables is that actors often, maybe some would say usually, are very instrumental in their attitudes about political regimes. They'll support a regime if it gives them good outcomes. But we think that it's also the case that um, some actors have what we call normative preferences about political regimes. Um, some, you know, really good economists at, and at the, working at the individual level have called, have developed the concept of procedural preferences and instrumental preferences. For us, a normative preference for democracy is an actor who has a procedural preference for democracy. They prefer democracy because of its guarantees, uh, the guarantees of civil and political rights, the guarantee of elections, um, which mean that you can, you know, if you don't like the government, you have an opportunity to change it. Um, 
And what is a normative preference for dictatorship? In some contexts, for example, one could think about Iran today, right? There are very powerful actors who think that a theocracy is the best possible form of regime, even if it doesn't produce good economic outcomes, for example. Um, and then the third variable was a scale from uh, for each actor from moderation to radicalism. And that's a scale that sounds familiar. It's we, we, we use it to combine two things. One is where actors are in a left-right scale. To be a radical actor, you can't be in the center for us. You don't have to be far left or far right. Uh, and you have to combine that position on the left-right scale with what we call policy impatience or intransigence. So, in other words, you could be a left Democrat, but if you're willing to say, okay, you know, I want profound social change, but I think it's essential to do it through a democratic process, and I'm willing to accept slow change if that's, if you know, to protect democracy. For us, that is not a radical actor. In some other definitions, of course, it would be. And why don't you tell us just a little bit? There's lots and lots of findings, and I want to talk, after we talk about this, I'd like to talk about a little bit about the case studies. But I wonder if you can just try, describe a little bit about what your um, statistical analysis showed us. Well, the main variables that show up in the statistical analysis, um, first, international influences, um, the regional political context is important for both democratic stability and transitions to democracy. Um, second, um, the normative preferences for um, democracy variable is very important for explaining why democracies persist. Um, and third, um, this is interesting, and it wasn't ex ante obvious. Radicalism is problematic for democracy. That is, high radicalism predicts democratic, uh, lower probability of democratic survival. It had that variable had no impact on dictatorships. We think that the reason is that um, radical actors can be very good at challenging dictatorships in some contexts. In other contexts, radical actors spur a dictatorship on to dig its heels in even more firmly. So we think that's where we get a wash with that variable. And and I wonder is, um, if we could turn to the two case studies of, of um, Salvador and, and Argentina. How did these uh, statistical findings bear out with with your qualitative look at these other uh, these two specific uh, nations. Good. So um, in Argentina, um, both the radicalism and the normative preferences for democracy variables play out exactly in accord with the uh, the quantitative findings. In the Salvadoran case, it's it's slightly trickier. You know, if you code El Salvador as semi-democratic from 1984 on, as we do, um, there you have a case in which, uh, despite actors that, a, a predominance of actors with weak normative preferences and very radical actors, um, a, semi, a semi-democratic regime was able to survive. But if you look 
attentively. You know, it's also the case that these actors pretty quickly, that is by, you know, the late 80s, became much less radical. Um, the most important actors, the FMLN and ARENA, the right-wing political party, both um, moved away from their previous normative preferences for some kind of dictatorship to at least at least neutral initially. And then we think that, you know, they had a soft normative, they developed a soft normative preference for democracy. The international variable, we think, was less important in the Argentine case. Not surprisingly, Argentina is a pretty big country, uh, pretty far from the United States. Where the international variable was important in Argentina was that it was, uh, you know, the Argentina was part of a southern cone and Brazil and beyond rethinking of politics on the left. The Salvadoran case, you know, I think was very significantly influenced by U.S. policy. So the the international variable was really important in that case. How bound are these findings, um, either the qualitative or the quantitative, how bound are they to Latin America? Um, uh, asking you to sort of do what you didn't didn't um, try to do. But but how, how generalizable can we take these findings to other settings? Right. Um, well. I, I I think that they work very well for a lot of European cases in the 20th century. Um, so we very briefly in the book discuss Weimar Germany, um, the Spanish Civil War, the breakdown of democracy in Spain in 1936, and then the um, reconstruction of democracy um, the the transition to democracy and the consolidation of democracy in this in Spain from 1977 on, um, but I think you know beyond that it works really well for most of Europe in most of the 20th century. I don't know enough say about the Arab world or you know um, a, a lot of other parts of the world to be able to say yeah I'm really confident that this theoretical approach would work. Um, beyond the Western world. Um, Anibal and I don't entirely agree about how much it works for earlier time periods. I think of this, uh, our theoretical approach, as working mostly at a time of mass politics. It's at this period of time when, you know, organized actors become really important. Before then, often more personalistic domination was the way that authoritarian rule happened. Uh, of course, there's some of that well into the 20th century, but it, it coexists with very important organizations. Um, so I think of, the, of our theoretical approach as mostly, you know, 20th century or in some countries, many countries, in uh, Europe and Latin America, late 19th or perhaps even mid 19th century, uh, but not for earlier time periods. So the book is out um, and and it's really interesting. What's what's next for you? Are you guys going to be working together on something? Is there something that we can have to look forward to? Uh, well, we are working on a couple of papers together. Um, one on democratic erosions. 
which we define as either a movement from democracy to semi-democracy or from semi-democracy or democracy to authoritarianism, but without a coup. Um, so that paper will build on the same data set um, and, uh, you know, we'll see what we come up with. Uh, we have that to look forward to, as, as well as the current book, which is uh, Democracies and Dictatorships in Latin America, Emergence, Survival, and Fall. Uh, the book, book was published in 2013 by Cambridge University Press, available widely. Scott, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Heath. Great questions. I enjoyed the interview.